You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Isn't that good? That is a short two-minute clip from the third video of the Fearless series for men. And that is Nate Larkin, who's become a dear friend of mine. Nate is a former pastor because he is a recovering sex addict. And his sex addiction destroyed his ministry. And then after that, Nate got into recovery. And now he has... He, he runs or founded actually an international ministry called the Samson Society to men all over the world who are struggling with unwanted and compulsive sexual behavior. And Nate has become a dear, dear friend. The Fearless Series for Men, folks, is filled with moments just like that one. It's amazing how God put this together. And uh, I love the way that Michael put that music underneath that particular clip. It's so powerful, so powerful. Thank you for allowing me to be here. I brought out the uh, Harley handlebars this morning because Derek is not mature enough to use these. So I told him um, if he really starts riding, I'll let him use my handlebar, you know, podium. But other than that, it has to stay back in my office and uh, the office that I don't use anymore, but still got an office. You know, when they take your office away, that's when you know you're really done. So I'm holding on to that. And, uh, but Derek this, uh, was in England for a couple of weeks doing some uh, PhD study in Oxford and uh, then came back last Sunday. And of course, this weekend he's gone and asked me if I would step in. He, Camelia, his sweet little girl, is competing in a national gymnastics competition this weekend. That's her, just before she headed for her competition yesterday. And he said, I know I've been gone a lot, but I really need to be there for my daughter. I said, son, you go. You go. Because you're creating moments that you'll never forget and that Camellia will never forget. One of the struggles for pastors, folks, is quite frankly, though we are on call 24-7, most of you only see us on Sunday. So if we're not there on Sunday, you assume we're not working. And so a lot of times what pastors do is because they need to be here in the pulpit on Sunday, they miss a lot of those weekend experiences with their children that you're free to do because you don't have to be up here and so you can go and you can go to those tournaments and those things. And a lot of times that's why pastor's children grew up and be very rebellious and hate the church and resent their father because he was always there rather than with them. And I said, you go and we will always be here to support you and back you up as you build memories with your children. I'm thankful that for the 38 years that I was the pastor of this church since its beginning, that I was uh, given the freedom by this body of believers to chase my son all over the country, taking him to golf tournaments and all those kinds of things. And that has, uh, has created memories for me that I'll f- never forget and some that he wishes he could forget. <clears throat> but thank you very much. And so that's what Derek is doing and he'll be back here, I, I think, this evening. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been to one of those scratch and dent warehouses? Those places that are just filled with stuff that once was on the showroom floor. And then something happened. Someone bumped into it and it caused a dent or there was a minor tear in the fabric or there was a scratch in the paint. And because of that, it gets moved to the scratch and dent warehouse and inevitably 
gets sold at discount. You know, the reality is that at the scratch and dent, you can find a whole lot of treasures. There you go. You're too tall, man. There you go. Thank you. You can find a lot of treasures at the Scratch and Dent. As a matter of fact, my wife is the queen of Scratch and Dent because you see, she's a master of the art of restoration. As an artist, she can look at that dented piece of, you know, that dented washer or that torn fabric or that scratch in the paint And she can see beyond what it is and sees what it can become when restoration has happened. And so our house is filled with junk from the scratch and dent. But it's not junk anymore because you see it's been restored. The artist's hand has touched it and restored it. So what I want to speak to you this morning about is scratch and dent ministry. The ministry from a biblical perspective is the ministry of restoration. It's what we have been doing for decades here, helping people to be restored in the areas of their broken places in their lives because of life experiences. And so we've been doing that for decades here, restoring people. And now I am carrying that message around the country with the Fearless Series for Men and Women and speaking at conventions and speaking at conferences and and training churches. I'm carrying the message around the country that was really birthed here at City on the Hill. So I'm kind of a missionary going out. And everywhere I go, I talk about that these things were hashed out. These truths came to understanding and practice in that church over those three, almost four decades. And as I go and talk about hospital church ministry and how we need to be healed in those areas of our broken places, those scratches and those dents in our lives, you might think that church leaders would just run to implement this ministry. And you would be completely wrong. As a matter of fact, I find myself often having to spend a good bit of my time convincing church leaders of two things. First of all, helping them or trying to help them understand how really messed up the members of the church were. I mean, you know, the typical pastor just really doesn't want to get in touch with how really broken and messed up his people really are. That's the first thing, and I typically am not very successful in that. They ultimately have to experience themselves. The second is that the ministry of help, hope, and healing, this ministry that we're going to talk about this morning of restoration, is something that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be involved in in the first place. Because oftentimes I get, well, we're not qualified to do that kind of work. We just ship them off to a counselor if if everybody needs help. And so... understanding that this is ministry that Jesus has really called the church to do sometimes is where I spend a good bit of my time. So as I go, I go as your representative. So I want to share with you this morning some of what the message is that I am carrying to pastors and churches all over America as you now have allowed me to do so. The New Testament spells out two very key ministries that Jesus has called his people to that Jesus has called us to individually and he has called the church collectively to do. The first one is the ministry of reconciliation. And I call that the ministry of salvation, the heaven ministry. And what I'm talking about is that men and women need to be reconciled to God. 
that our sin that we are born in has separated us from our perfect God and that we need to be reconciled to him through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and faith in his sacrifice. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, he says, now all of these things are from God. In other words, all this stuff I've been saying, he says, this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So what the scripture is saying here is that now we have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We were separated. Now we have been reconciled. And so now we are to carry that message of reconciliation out to the world. It's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples. In other words, carry the gospel of Jesus through the world. That's heaven ministry. That's getting people reconciled to God where they have the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's salvation ministry. That's reconciliation. And we understand that. We understand that. Whether we do any of it or not, at least we understand that God has called us to this work. But it's the other ministry that I want to focus on for the rest of the hour and a half that we have together this morning. (laughs) You know, Derek preaches about 30, 35 minutes. I am ashamed of him. I taught him better than that. I did. I taught him better than that. Okay. But, but that's okay. So every now and then you just have to come in and take your cod liver oil when I come up and, and I give you 45 minutes worth of it. But that's, that's heaven ministry. It's just that other ministry that I want to talk about this morning, which is the message that I am carrying to the churches in the nation. And this is the one that they have the struggle to accept. The the audiences to which I speak don't have a problem with the message of reconciliation. They know that we need to be reconciled to God. They know that we are called to evangelism. We are called to missions. We are called all. They know all of that. But when it comes to this one, this is where they struggle. And that is the ministry of restoration. This is, I will call, the ministry of suffering. This is the hospital church ministry that we believe is a part of what God has called us to be as a church. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter six, verses one and two. When he writes to the churches of Galatia, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a trespass or a transgression or sin, same word, different translations. If anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who are not involved in that, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep a watch for yourself, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, (laughs) he deceives himself. You know, God just says, hey, buddy, you think you're something? You ain't nothing. You ain't diddly. All right? Now, I love this verse of Scripture. There's a whole lot in this verse. Obviously, we don't have a lot of time to, to, to do it all. But I want you to focus on that word restore. Because that word restore reminds us of the ministry of reconciliation. Restore people when they are broken. Restore when the results of sin have done evil things in their life. Restore them. And he calls that bearing one another's burdens. He says, bear one another's burdens, right? Right after that. And he said, but watch out that you don't get caught up in it as well and that you get dragged down. In other words, you ain't so good yourself. So just be careful as you're doing this. And I love the Greek word that is translated as restore there. It's actually a medical term in ancient Greek that means to set a broken bone. Isn't that cool? To set, it's a medical term. And so it's when you come to someone who is broken in sin because of the results of that and the ramifications of that, and you 
carry this burden with them, what you are doing, they are like a broken bone and you are helping them to be reset into the proper place. You see, we know what to do when someone needs Jesus, don't we? We need to tell them about Jesus. We need to share the gospel. We know when someone needs to be reconciled to the Father through faith in Christ. But what about after someone has been reconciled to Christ and they need restoration from the brokenness of things in their life? What about when believers are broken and don't need the ministry of heaven because they've already received that in Christ, but now they need the ministry of a hospital of help, hope, and healing. You see, the ministry of reconciliation, folks, is to the lost, but the ministry of restoration is to the found. Jesus calls us to both of those ministries. To the lost, carry the gospel that they may be found and then restore one another, bear one another's burdens in this way. And I submit to you that the call of restoration to the church is just as valid as the call to reconciliation because we are in fact called to be engaged in both of these. Now, the question comes then, how does a Christian end up in the scratch and dent section? You know, I mean, how do those that are blood-bought, born again, raised with Jesus, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, we can sing about it. How, when somebody's had all of that, how do they wind up in the back warehouse scratching dent and in need of restoration? Well, Galatians 6.1 tells us, if anyone is caught in a transgression, if anyone is caught in sin, he says that's what leads to the need for the ministry of reconciliation, I mean, of restoration. Now, let me stop for just a second here. Let me give you a truth. The truth is, folks, the problem is sin. You go, I knew you were a Baptist preacher. <laughs> well, I are one. I'm just not mad about it. No, the problem is sin, folks. It's always sin. Sin is why the lost need reconciliation to a perfect God. Sin is why believers who have been reconciled sometimes need restoration. The problem is always sin. So let me give you two statements. Sin is about what is wrong with us, okay? Sin is what is wrong with us. In other words, sin is the problem. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, they would have never had a problem, nor would we. They would have continued in the garden, and we would have continued in a garden experience, running around naked and no shame. Delete the picture. <laughs> but if sin hadn't entered, we wouldn't need to delete this picture because there would be no shame. Are you getting it? We inherited that sin nature from that initial sin and it now is the source of all our problems. It's the reason we need to be reconciled to God because we are separated from perfect God by sin. It is why believers who have been reconciled sometimes need restoration because they're caught. So the first statement, get this, sin is about what is wrong with us. Here's the second statement. Suffering is about what sin does to us. Why were we separated from God? 
Because of sin. Why do we suffer even though we are now in Christ? Because of sin. Sin is the problem. And sin always results in suffering. Hang on to that thought. So let me ask you a question then. When you were saved, was the eternal penalty for your sin paid? By the blood of Christ, right? Well, when you became a Christian, did sin suddenly stop become a problem for you? I mean, did you become sinless? Like Nate talked about the churches that he grew up in. There are churches that believe that, that you can be so holy that you can become sinless. That's heresy, but there are people that teach that garbage. No, none of us do that. You didn't become sinless. It wasn't like, poof, wow, man, I'm just really good now. No struggle. Let me ask you another question. Did the world around you stop being a fallen and sinful world? Did people, when you came to Jesus, suddenly start being just so nice to you? I mean, bad stuff never happened to you anymore. Was that your experience? If you think it is, you're delusional and you need the psych ward at JPS. You've got your head in the sand or somewhere else. Hey, don't go there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just a West Texas redneck with a doctor's degree. I'm screwed up from beginning to end. No, it didn't stop. With temptation that comes to us, sometimes we get in. We get drawn in. We're still surrounded by other sinners who sometimes harm us, and we still live in a fallen world where hurtful things happen, and we're still idiots enough that we harm others with our sinful actions. But here's the key truth again. Sin always brings suffering. Folks, understand that. Sin always brings suffering. The source of our suffering is sin. We live in a fallen world. And that results in suffering. People sin against us and that results in suffering. We cause sin against others and that causes suffering. Because we are sinners, we are also sufferers. This is biblical truth. It's why scripture says that only in heaven will there be no more suffering. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, And in that time he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All of those things that are diseased by sin are gone, and there's no more suffering. When there is sin, there is suffering. When sin is gone, there will be no more suffering. It's sin that causes our separation from God and we need thus reconciliation. It's sin that causes our suffering and puts us in need of restoration. So we suffer because of sin. Sometimes it is our own sin that causes suffering. Sometimes it is the sin of others against us that puts us into that experience of suffering, but sin always results in suffering. Now, we think it's not going to. We just want to do it because we think it's going to make it better, but it always brings suffering. Now, take the Old Testament people, the Hebrews, as an example. 
They were sinned against and it brought suffering. The sin I'm talking about is when Pharaoh put them into slavery for four centuries, 400 years. You remember the Hebrew people had been under the, the leadership of Joseph and the favor that Joseph had with the, the Pharaoh there. The Hebrew people were living in Egypt and they were living great. And then that Pharaoh went away and he died. And it says another Pharaoh came who knew not Joseph, you know. The King James says who knew not Joseph. In other words, he didn't know who this dude was and he didn't care. But all he saw was that the Hebrew people were beginning to outnumber the Egyptians and he was afraid they were gonna cause an insurrection, throw him off the throne and take over. So what did he do? He enslaved them. Was that sin against them? Yeah. What was the result? They suffered. They suffered in bondage. God's people, the Old Testament people, Hebrew people, suffered for 400 years. Wasn't anything they did, it was what was done to them that cast them into that suffering. Because sin always results in suffering. So then God says, well, all right, I'm, it's time to deliver them and send them into the land that I promised to their father Abraham. He raised up Moses, you know, blah, 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 blah. Did an attitude adjustment with Pharaoh, got them out of there. They're headed for the promised land. They come to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to fellowship with God. And in the meantime, they get scared down below, don't they? What do they do? They turn back to idols. They build a golden calf and begin to wear, bear, bow down and worship that golden calf. Was that sin? It's idolatry, wasn't it? Did they suffer? You're darn right they did. You know what God said? Because of what you have done, not a single one of you will enter into that promised land, only your children. So you will wander for 40 years in this wilderness wanders till every single one of you has died and you will not experience the promise of the promised land, only your children. You see, they were sinned against by Pharaoh and they suffered. They committed sin and they suffered because sin always results in suffering. Sometimes it's our own sin, sometimes it is a sin against us. Now, oftentimes, hang with me here, Oftentimes, the things that cause us the most trouble in our lives are when those things happen to us when we are the most vulnerable in childhood. It can be abuse, it can be trauma, it can be mistreatment, all of those things. Now, the question here is this. When you are reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus and are given the promise of eternal life, do all of the impacts of those harmful childhood experiences just disappear? Now, there are many who would like to believe that's true. You know it's not true. You may deny it. You may try to stuff that. You may try to bury it, but it comes like the night of the living dead. That sucker comes back to life, doesn't it? And it causes you problems. You see, we can deny it, we can stuff it, we can ignore it, but they are there and they impact our lives if we don't experience restoration. If we don't experience the help, hope, and healing. It can be sexual abuse. That's a predominant topic in our culture as it should be. It's one of the messages that I carry around with a fearless series of women, fearless series for men, is the prominence of sexual abuse. And you know what they tell us? The statistics are here. It's not just speculation. We know it to be true that a minimum of one in three girls will be sexually abused by the time she's 18. That is over and over and over proven by every clinical study. That means, ladies, one in three 
at minimum in this room, if you're over 18, you have been sexually abused. We also know that 90% of the time it's by someone the child knows and trusts and the vast majority of people never get help. Do you think that childhood trauma affects you as an adult? That sin against you, if you don't deal with it, see that you need restoration. You need the ministry of restoration. You need the ministry of healing. It can be physical abuse. We're not even going to attempt to go at the numbers on this one. Physically abused as a child? What is that? What does that look like? We're not even going to try to guess. They tell us a minimum of one in four guys are going to be sexually abused as boys. So if you take one in three women in this room, one in three boys, we're a messed up bunch of folk. Just with sexual abuse, you add physical abuse to that. Maybe you weren't sexually abused, but you were physically abused. Let's add the third one. How about emotional abuse? Where you didn't get what you needed emotionally as a child, that nurturing and that comfort are maybe exactly the opposite. You got what you didn't need. You were put down verbally or you were abandoned as I was as a child. We take all of these together, folks. We are messed up as human beings. Even though we love Jesus and we're called, we're Christ followers, have been reconciled to God. We are also to experience the ministry of reconciliation, the healing of those things. You see, all of those things are wrong. You were sinned against, and what does sin bring? Suffering until healing takes place, until restoration takes place. The only way to get out of those things attitudes and those actions and those behaviors in your life that come out of that early trauma or even adult trauma, the only way to get that from messing up your relationships in your life is to be restored in your soul, the healing of God. When we have experienced those things and we are reconciled, we have received the ministry of salvation. We have received the ministry of heaven, and that is so important. But we will then eventually need the ministry of restoration, the ministry to suffering, the ministry of the hospital for healing because sin brings suffering. Folks, this is not psychobabble. I know it talks, it sounds like psychobabble. In fact, I'm accused sometimes by pastors who say, well, you, James, you're just talking about psychology. No, I'm not. I'm talking about biblical truth. This is biblical truth. I'm not a psychologist. I wouldn't want to be. They're the most screwed up people on the planet. <laughs> Seriously, my psychology professor in, 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 in college was the most messed up human being I've ever met. He went into psychology just trying to fix himself. So I'm not talking about psychology, folks. I'm talking about spiritual truth. I'm talking about biblical truth. Because you see, we see this even in the lives of the heroes of the Bible. God's word is the most honest book ever written, folks. That's how we know it, God inspired it. Because if men had written this of their own initiative, there's so much that would be left out. Man, in fact, if this was not the book of God, we would only know the story of David and Goliath. We would never hear of the story of David and Bathsheba. 
Never would have. We'd have glossed right over that puppy. Because we want David to be a hero. We want him to be perfect. Well, he wasn't. So God's word is honest. Yes, he's David, the man after God's home. Yeah, heart. Yes, there's David. But there's also David and Bathsheba. Adultery and then murder. Don't forget that one. You think David was messed up? He's the most messed up individual in the Bible. Yet God used him. David needed restoration. And hopefully he got it when Nathan came and confronted him with all of that. You see, if, if this was a human book, we'd only hear about Thomas the believer. We would never have heard about doubting Thomas, one of the disciples of Jesus. We would have only heard of Peter preaching that great sermon on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people coming to Christ. We wouldn't hear about Peter denying Jesus. And we wouldn't hear about Peter's hypocrisy that he had to be confronted by the Apostle Paul for later on in his life. No, all that stuff would have been left out. So let's take just a couple of moments, you know, two or three hours, and let's look at just two, two of our, our, our people. You see, what we do is we need to make our heroes human because they were. And what we tend to do is we tend, even though the Scripture goes out of its way to help us understand how human and fallen they were just like us we kind of tend to ignore that and we want to elevate them to this place that's higher than who we are they weren't and let me just talk about two of them okay well up let's let's take a minute here first before we talk about them were the people of the bible were they born into a fallen world just like ours was their world better than ours now <laughs> Boy, you haven't studied ancient history, if you believe that. Were, let me ask you this. Were Peter, James, and John, David, Paul, were they raised by imperfect parents? Because they're Bible heroes, did that mean they had perfect parents? Were they raised sometimes in families that were dysfunctional, like some of ours were, or, or debased, or depraved, or destructive even to them as human beings? Did that only begin in our time? Is that a modern phenomena? You go, I don't know. What am I supposed to answer? Just give the Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus is never wrong. If you don't know the answer, just say Jesus, and you'll get it right every time. <laughs> Let's give the Sunday school answer. There you go, okay. Is physical abuse a modern phenomena? Is sexual abuse a modern phenomena? Is emotional abuse a modern phenomena? Jesus. No, it was happening then. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you need help. <laughs> you people really need help. No, folks, we have the stories in the scripture of fathers raping their daughter of brothers doing the same, of human trafficking everywhere, and it was even legal. None of that stuff is modern. That has been here since the fall. Every Bible hero was exposed to everything you were in our world. Bad things happened to them because they were in a fallen world. They had abuse, trauma, they had their own trauma, they had their own abuse, they had their own sin, they were as messed up as you are, because I'm not. 
I'm on the podium, so I get to be perfect. Right. See, folks, God didn't choose them because they weren't messed up. He chose them because they were. Because that's all he has. If God is only going to use people that aren't messed up, he ain't going to use nobody because that's all we are. We're all born in the fallen world. We're all born with a sin nature. We all sin against others and we all have sin people against us and we are messed up. So God didn't choose Peter because he was a cut above the norm. He didn't choose David because he was a cut above the norm. He didn't choose, he didn't choose any of those people because they were a cut above. They were all just bozos on the bus. Like Nate said in the clip. But nobody wants to be just another bozo on the bus. So they all times presented themselves as if they were more than they really were, just like you and I do. As a result of our need for restoration in those broken places in us. Let's do it real quick. <laughs> you know, I have to finish early in the first service because there's another group of victims coming in. But I always said, I don't have that cutoff time for you. You ought to get smart, come to the first service. But I'll try to honor your time. Let's talk about Peter for just a moment. Peter demonstrated all the signs of someone who had deep-seated approval needs. Peter needed people's approval. Well, we don't know where it came from because we don't know about what he experienced in his life as a child. We only know him as an adult man, as a fisherman, and then as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So scripture doesn't tell us why Peter carried this issue with approval. It just shows us and reveals to us that he actually did in the way that he acted. And it caused him lots of problems. You see, wasn't Peter always the one that was beating his chest? I'm better than all the other disciples, Jesus. And I'm better than everybody else. Jesus, look at me. Look at me, Jesus, approve of me. Always wanting to be noticed. Always wanting to be seen as a cut above. Not, as I said a moment ago, just another bozo on the bus. Jesus, on the night of his arrest, told the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. Immediately, without hesitation, Peter jumps up and said, not me, Lord. Look at me. These other bozos, all 11 of them might leave you, but not me. Approve of me, Jesus. Value me, Jesus. If you humanize Peter, you can see him doing that. You can see him feeling that just as you have felt that need for approval. He wanted everyone to believe that he was something he was not. And that is the classic definition of someone who has deep-seated approval needs that causes them to do things to get that approval. So a lot of people say, well, but James, if that was before Pentecost, that was before the Holy Spirit came, and that was before in Acts chapter two when Peter stood and preached the great sermon on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved and he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was a totally different dude after that. Really? Well, not exactly. Because in Acts chapter 10, God revealed to Peter, who was raised as a Hebrew, according to the kosher laws of the Mosaic law, who hated Gentiles. And the idea of the early Christian Jews was that you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. Okay? So Peter still had that. And you couldn't eat, you know, the non-kosher foods. So in Acts chapter 10, God gives 
Peter a, an irreversible vision that says, no, no, Peter, eat it all. Go out and have some bacon. Get you a ham sandwich with mustard and mayonnaise. Just let it dribble down your chin, Peter. Because you see, don't you dare, God says, declare unclean what I have declared clean. Ooh, that was a tough message. And with that message was that, and a Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. The gospel goes to Jew and Gentile alike. Peter got that message because right after that, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who was a Gentile, came to Peter. Peter told him about Jesus and the first Gentile was saved, Cornelius, at the voice of Peter. So Peter got this message. He got this message. And it was decades later. <laughs> In Galatians chapter 2, where Peter, Paul says that he had to confront Peter for his hypocrisy on this very issue. The issue of Jews and Gentiles. Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 2, but for before certain men came from James who was in Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, Judaizers, those that were still teaching, okay, we're Christians, but we're Jews, and all you Gentiles have to first become Jews before you can be, that was their message. Well, they came in, and it says, and when they came in, he drew back from the Gentiles, separated himself, and went and ate with the Judaizers. And Paul says, that was such hypocrisy that I confronted him to his face. Now, why, after he had that vision from God in Acts 10, after he'd seen Cornelius become a Christian, after he'd lived decades understanding that the gospel was for Jew and Gentile, and a Gentile did not have to come to, to uh, become a Jew, and that Jews even could eat all things, why, after all that time, would he withdraw and go with the Judaizers? Because he wanted their approval. He wanted their approval. He valued their approval more than he did truth in that moment. And that's never happened to anybody in this room, has it? Nobody ever experienced the pressure of do I experience their disapproval and stand for truth? Or do I walk away from truth and get my approval needs met? Peter was human just like you and I. This was a recurring thing in Peter. He struggled with it and struggled with it. He needed a freedom group. And I guess they just didn't have any at the time. He needed restoration in the broken place. How about Thomas? Well, Thomas had trust issues. Peter had approval issues, but Thomas had real trust issues. His fellow disciple, the apostle John, remember who wrote the gospel of John, first, second, third letter of John, and then the book of Revelation. He had, he, he, he had Thomas's number. We refer to Thomas as Doubting Thomas. You know why we do? Because of the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them mention Thomas doubting. But John mentions it several times. See, John had Thomas's number, and John is going to point it out. And the Holy Spirit, I'm, think, I'm thankful that he did because it helps us see something that really plagued Thomas. In John chapter 11, Jesus and the disciples have left Judea, the area around Jerusalem, because Jesus, the religious leaders are out to kill Jesus already, okay? And so they leave. They go to, it says they go to the east side of the Jordan River. Jerusalem's on the west side. 
the West Bank. And they're on the east side, okay, 20, 30 miles away from Jerusalem because, you know, Palestine, very small little area. But 20, 30 miles is like 500 miles in Texas, okay? You can drive three days and still be in Texas. But the Holy Land's not that big. So in John chapter 11, they're over on the other side. And Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus in Bethany, which is just a little suburb of Jerusalem, has died. Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus, and Lazarus has died. And so Jesus says to the disciples, hey, Laz has fallen asleep. That's a word he used, fallen asleep. I must go awaken him. And the disciples, who were not the sharpest tools in the shed, said, well, if he's just asleep, he'll, he'll wake up. We don't need to go. So then John says, Jesus said it clearly. And then we had to spell it out for him. Well, let me just spell it out for you. He's dead. He stinketh. How about that? Is that clear enough for you guys? Oh, we get it, Jesus. We get it. Thomas immediately responds about going back where there's a death sentence on Jesus' head and those who are with him. They're going to kill him. He says, verse 16, well, let us all go that we may die with him. Can you hear this? Jesus has just said, he's dead, and I'm going to go raise him from the dead. And Peter said, no, what you're going to, or Thomas says, no, what you're going to do is you're going to get us all killed, Jesus. <laughs> do you think Thomas has experienced a little trust issues here? And John points it out very clearly. What a stupid statement. Verse 16, right in the middle. Well, let us go then. We're all going to die. Chapter 20 of John's gospel. Jesus by this time has been crucified and resurrected. He's appeared to many of the disciples. But Thomas hadn't seen him yet. So the disciples come and they say to Thomas, they say, well, the Lord is risen, we've seen him. And Thomas says in John 20, 25, unless I see his, his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails in his side and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Jesus says, hey, Thomas, put your finger right here, buddy. Put your hand right here. And when Thomas saw, it says he fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus responds, oh, you believe because you've seen? How blessed are those who will never see yet will believe. Jesus is speaking right to the heart of Thomas. Thomas, you're always questioned. Thomas, you have a refusal to trust. Thomas, you have a refusal to trust even in me. Thomas, fix it. When John mentions Thomas, Thomas is always doubting. That is the scripture giving us the human look at Thomas. We don't know why Thomas had trust issues. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. We just know he did. But what we know now about us, those of us that struggle with trust issues, is somebody who was a trust, supposed to be a trustworthy person abandoned us, wounded us, and it created in us this struggle with trusting. And we need to be restored in that area of our lives. We need healing in that area so that it doesn't continue to plague us. You got it? Okay, two important things. If you will give me 10 minutes, which will be seven minutes over your time, I'll finish. Two important things about these people in Scripture. They were human in every way, just like us. They had their issues. Do you buy that? In spite of that, God used them. Why? Because broken people are all he has to use. 
We're all broken. He uses imperfect people, all there is. Would they have been better? Would Peter have been better if he'd experienced restoration and healing of his need for approval? Would he have been better? Just say Jesus. No, you're darn right he'd have been better. He perhaps wouldn't have denied Jesus on his night of his arrest. You know, he, he maybe wouldn't have gone aside with the Judaizers and denied the gospel. He wouldn't have done all that stuff if he had experienced healing. Would Thomas have been better if he had experienced in those broken places, that area that caused him to struggle with trust? Do you think that his relationship with Jesus was the only place that he struggled with trust? No, it doesn't with any of us. He had trust issues in every relationship. If he was married, he had trust issues in his marriage. He had trust issues with people around him. He needed healing. He needed restoration from the effects of what had been done to him. Where has Jesus provided for reconciliation and restoration? Okay, here it is, his body. Jesus provides for reconciliation and restoration with his body. Let me do it very quickly. Reconciliation through his physical body. Luke twenty two nineteen. 19, Jesus gave them that picture of the Lord's Supper. He said, this is my what? What is it? Broken for you. Why? What's he talking about? The cross. Jesus provides reconciliation for us through his physical body. Jesus provides restoration through his spiritual body. Hang with me. What is the most often used picture of what the church is supposed to be in the New Testament? The body of Christ. You could have said Jesus and you'd have gotten it. See, that Sunday school answer works. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you, Paul is writing to the church, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Jesus had a physical body and Jesus now, folks, still has a body, but now it is a spiritual body. It is the church. We are the visible manifestation of the body of Jesus. Someone says, we are the only Jesus the world will ever see. And that's true because they'll never see his physical body. That was crucified. Now we are the spiritual body of which he is the head. Now, consider these statements about Christ's body. Jesus reconciles us from our sin to God through his physical body, right? Jesus, the minister of restoration, restores us in our suffering from sin through his spiritual body. This is where it's supposed to happen. That's the one another's. Bear one another's brother, burdens. Love one another, encourage one another. Do the one another's so that you may be restored. And whenever it's done, on the cross, in his physical body, in the church, in his spiritual body, it is who doing it? It is Jesus doing it. Closing statements and then I'll quit. I got four minutes before I become a liar. Jesus addressed our sin in his physical body by his death on the cross as our savior, right? It's pretty easy, we got that. That was his physical body. Now, Jesus addresses our suffering in his spiritual body, the church, as our shepherd. How does Jesus shepherd us through his body, one another? It's the shepherd that's doing the work. Second, Jesus went to the cross in his physical body to address our sin. 
Jesus lives through the church, his spiritual body, to address our suffering. It's Jesus doing both. He addresses the eternal penalty of our sin with his physical body. He addresses the suffering of our sin through his spiritual body. One another. Third, if we are his body and we minister to one another, it is Jesus, the great shepherd, doing it. Now, what that means to me is if we ship people out to some professional because they have some of these broken places, we're saying, well, Jesus' body is not enough. How is the shepherd ministering when it's not happening through his body? His intent, folks, is for the church to be a hospital of help, hope, and healing so he can minister restoration to us in our broken places. One another. This is not psychobabble. This is not gobbledygook. This is biblical theology. And the church, for the most part in America today, has abdicated its God-given call to be a place of restoration for all of us in our broken places so that we can be better husbands, better fathers, better teachers, better employers, better employees, so that our broken places can be fixed and we can be better representations of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Fourth, and I love this one, when someone is hurting and we say, well, take it to Jesus, brother. You know what we're saying? I don't want to mess with your problem, so take it to Jesus. That's really what it is. You need to pray about that, brother, and we need to pray about it. That's, that's right. But get this. If the church is his body, and we say take it to Jesus, where are we telling them to take it? To the body. We say take it to Jesus because that's a spiritual platitude that we like, and we really don't want to get our hands dirty in somebody else's issues. We don't want to bear their burden. Like Paul said, you know, when you restore someone, what are you doing? You're taking on a burden, aren't you? But we don't want to take that burden on, so what we do is take it to Jesus. Well, the truth of that is, if we say that, we have to say that means you take it to us. Because we are his body. And we'll bear that burden with you. And we'll walk with you through that process of help, hope, and healing. That you may be restored in that broken place. And when I need restoration in my broken places, will you be there for me? Reconciliation happens through his physical body. Restoration happens through his spiritual body. As I said, I'm not against counseling. There are lovely Christian counselors. I speak to groups of them all over the country. I love Christian counselors. And they all get this. They get that they can't do the work. They get that the people that come to them are people in churches where the church ought to be doing the work, but the church is not doing the work, so they have to pay them 150 bucks an hour for 10 years to get help. And sometimes they need that. Sometimes that's great, wonderful. But wouldn't it be more, wouldn't Jesus get the glory if his body, the visible manifestation of Jesus in this community was a place of help, hope, and healing for broken people? Thank God, city on a hill. May your tribe increase. I am carrying this message all over America, every opportunity I get, and it is not being received with great open arms. 
I have to do a great deal of work before I can even tell them how a church can become that. I have to first convince them it should be like that. But in God's grace and his mercy, he's doing it a bit at a time. I'm probably going to die and be with Jesus before it really takes hold. That's okay, as long as it does. Now, I want to ask you this morning. You're in a place. You're in a very unique place. You may not know it. You're in a hospital here. You're in a place that a group of people decided 30 years ago to start getting naked putting our hospital gown on and leaving the back untied. That's risky. But so that we can be known so that we can be healed. Because we cannot be healed unless we're willing to admit our hurt. We have to have a place to admit our hurt. And that's what this is about. And yet, perhaps you've never participated in one of the freedom groups that are designed specifically for that purpose, to give you a place where you can put that hospital gown on, you can be honest, maybe for the first time in your life, and you can receive grace and mercy like Nate talked about, you know. You see, Nate's a former pastor for a reason, because he was broken. Because out of his childhood abuse, he became a sex addict, and it submarined his entire ministry. But that was a blessing of God because then he got help, hope, and healing. And as Nate says it, he said, I didn't go to the church for healing. He said, well, I did, but I went to the basement of the church during the middle of the week when all the good people were gone. And he said, I met Jesus there like I had never met him up there with the good people. He was in an AA group that the church let him use their basement for a 12-step group. Are you with me here, folks? What an indictment on the body of Christ. You are in a place where you don't have to hide. What a blessing. But a bunch of you are. A bunch of you have been here for years and you've never one time put on your hospital gown. You've never one time gone to a freedom group. You've never one time said, okay, I'm gonna get real. I'm gonna look into these broken places and I'm gonna let people bear this burden with me so I can walk in help, hope, and healing. We'll be offering those again in the fall. It won't be too long. I encourage you, by the mercy of God, become a part. Do it. You'll be a better Christ follower. You'll be a better spouse. You'll be a better parent. When this healing that needs to take place happens, you'll be better in every way. And it's Jesus that's doing it. He gets the glory. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you in humble recognition that you use broken people. (laughs) It's so insane that we would think that you would choose people because they weren't broken because that's all of us. It was Peter, it was Thomas, it was David, it was John, it was everyone. And yet you use broken people and you bring healing and hope and help. So I pray for folks in this room today that are walking with some broken places that they are ashamed of. The enemy has convinced them through shame that they can't talk about it, they can't can't do anything about it that you'll bring them to the place of putting on that hospital gown, leaving the back untied and letting us see who they really are, that you might enter in through the one of another's and bring healing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The The 35-minute wonder will be back next week. (laughs) Gotta love Derek, gotta love him. Man, what a story, what a story.
Love the young man. God bless you.